0: wanted to vote so bad. Mm-hmm. And I remember registering her to vote. She put on her Sunday best, including her high heels shoes, and we went across the street to the community center to vote. And I remember um, how much pride she felt that day and how proud I
1: was in her, because I knew she could not have done this when she was born, and she couldn't have done it earlier. We are heading quickly into the 2020 presidential election, 2020, also the centennial of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. 2020, yet voting rights, central to our democracy, is still an issue in our nation. Welcome to this special edition of Southern Futures. I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion, with the Center for the Study of the American South. We have two guests for this bonus episode, neither of them strangers to voting rights and civil rights. Dr. Gloria Thomas is director of the Carolina Women's Center at UNC. Her academic work is in higher education. She advocates for the rights of women, but her advocacy includes more than women and she'll talk about that. Danita Mason-Hogans is program manager for Critical Oral Histories in the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Her current projects involve working with veteran civil rights activists, um, documenting their experiences and making those narratives accessible in K through 12 classrooms. Danita and Gloria, we want to thank you for joining us on Southern Futures for this special election episode. You heard the audio clip when we opened the show. That was the voice of Betty Murkison, a local entrepreneur and activist In an oral history captured by the Southern Oral History Program, what are your thoughts as you hear her recount the way her mom viewed voting? We know her mother was born uh, at a time when her right to vote was not protected in the South, even though she was a citizen of this country. That right was legally blocked in Southern states until the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting us to come on with two of my favorite people. (laughs) So I I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. And what uh, the clip really reminds me of is the relationship that I have with my mother and the tradition of voting rights that comes out of my family and also with my daughter who has been with me organizing since she was about 14 years old. And really what a deep tradition Black women and the vote come from and how it has really been centered to our existence in this country and what it really means to us as Black women. So it was a beautiful clip to to share with us.
2: Yeah, I, I would echo that as well. I have very clear recollections of going to the polls with my mother when uh, when I was a kid. It was one of those traditions that she, there were eight of us too, so she didn't take all eight, but she always took at least one of us with her, so that she could she could show us that this is something that you want to do. This is something that you want to engage in.
0: You just sparked a memory, um, a, a really special memory. My grandmother, who is my daughter's great grandmother, um, passed on the Tuesday right after the voting, um, the election, and the last thing that she did with my daughter. The last interaction they had was her sitting my daughter on her lap with her little wheelchair, rolling into the voting rights, the the voting poll and voting and um, talking about how important that election was. And that was um, something that's very special to our family. So thank you so much for even bringing up that memory.
2: I'm not a Southerner myself, but my mother was a country girl from Georgia and Yeah, she didn't have that experience growing up. She didn't see um, Black people voting then. So it was important that she showed us. And she wasn't very educated. She had a 10th grade education, but it was an important thing for her. And she made sure that we uh, understood that.
1: Memory is playing such a role in particular, in the African-American community, what a role memory is playing in the voting rights tradition. But I want to ask you, Gloria, why are we still discussing voter rights, voters' rights, when, again, it was 100 years ago when women, you know, were given, so to speak, given the right to vote. Um, But the 19th Amendment left some folks out. Let's talk about that a little bit. Who was left out?
2: Well, a whole lot of people were left out and suppression is real. I mean, you certainly alluded to uh, earlier some of the ways in which the, the franchisement is suppressed. And uh, when the 19th Amendment was passed, you had a whole s- generations of women of color, who particularly African-American women. I mean, that's the experience that I'm most familiar with. Uh, who, who, for whatever reason, because they couldn't write their name, because they didn't have, earn a certain amount of of income, whatever the case was, there, there was that way of suppressing that vote. Uh, and then, of course, they, they were turned away, and and this was one of the reasons. Of course, there were a lot of reasons that led to the, um, the the migration north, but that was one of the reasons. People wanted to participate in governance, and 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 the right to vote was a part of that. And so, many of them did flee to the north, including my grandmother, my grandfather. Um, and many of of that generation, my mother then followed them, uh, and all of them went from Georgia to to the Philadelphia area, and 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 they were there to to really take advantage of that experience of being able to vote, being able to get jobs. It's a lot of the things that you know was so suppressed in the South during the nineteen um, forties and fifties.
0: You know, in addition to the brilliant things that Doctor Thomas just said, that. I- you know, for me, when I think about 1920, I also think about the local impact of the women's movement of that time and, and the impact that it had locally. So just three years later, in 1923, we had a UNC graduate. His name was Charles Stedman, and he was from Pittsburgh. And what Charles Stedman did three years after white women were enfranchised, is that he tried to work with the United Daughters of the Confederacy to erect a Mammy statue that told of the glorious relationship between Black women and the South and how Black women were so happy to be subservient. Black women were so happy for the institution of slavery and how Black women lived their lives in service to the white community and were very quite happy about that. for me, this is three years after the 1920, um, the 1920 law that enfranchised white women. So when we talk about history and narrative, it's really important to contextualize those things and it's important to think about where we stood as Black women during that time of history and include that in the larger narrative of women and voting rights. You always complain and sit back and then not do about it. If you're going to, op- I've told myself, you could open up your
1: mouth to say that there's a problem. So are you going to be a part of the solution? Mm-hmm. So the solution is to participate. That is the voice of Dr. Valerie Johnson, Dean of the School of Arts, Sciences, and Humanities at Shaw University in an oral history interview with the Southern Oral History Program at UNC. This is Southern Futures, and I'm your host, Melody Hunter-Pillion, with Dr. Gloria Thomas, director of the Carolina Women's Center at UNC Chapel Hill, and Danita Mason-Hogans, program manager for critical oral histories at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. So Gloria and Danita, let's talk about what Dr. Johnson is getting at in that clip from the oral history interview, this idea of, you know, folks complaining about the state of what they see. Um, They're having, you know, heated discussions about social injustice. We're seeing all these protests, but then folks are not showing up at the polls. So yeah. what is going on? Voting is really, you know, action is what she's saying. And that's what is going to make the difference. Um, and in particular, and maybe I just don't know the numbers, are, are young people showing up? We know they're protesting,
2: but are they voting? Well, the data will certainly show that they are not showing up at the rates in which they exist. <laughs> so we, we do have to urge them to act. We do have to urge them to get to the polls and change or, or turn some of that protest into action at the polls. It remains to be seen if that's actually going to happen. It helps when they, they're candidates that they get excited about and that they feel like they want to back. Um, it really helps in, in that regard. But absent that, you, they, they've got to get out there to make change. And here's an opportunity to make change in at the local levels, at the state level, and at the national level. And, and you know, I do hope that they will turn out. Um, I've, I've made it a... And, and now that we're all home with my young adults, and it's it's going to be an, an event. We're going to make it a day. We're going to go early. We're going to go October seventeenth. Uh, I think is our day. That Saturday, um, I've put it on their calendar, and 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 I'm and urging them to you know tweet and uh, put it on Instagram. Um, you know that they're voting early so that their friends might follow suit. I mean, whatever. Um, ways that the young people can be an influence to to their peers, I think we've got to take advantage of it. And every week when I send out my Carolina Women's Center e-blast, what's your voting plan? It's in there every week. So I'm really trying to push, you know, since we're not all together, uh, encouraging students to do this. I'm really trying to push as much as we can to get the young people out.
0: And I also think that we as elders need to do a better job of explaining why it is important to vote and bringing our children up in the tradition, particularly as Black women, because Black women's voting rights really, and the struggle for voting rights, really came out of central issues that we are still dealing with today. I would say that poverty, education, mass incarceration in the police state, you know those healthcare; those are those are issues that our foremothers were fighting for in the 1800s, and we are still fighting on those same issues. So this this tradition of voting really has a lot to do with power, and I think that's one of the things that we can impart in our young people. And if we do that effectively, they will see that yes, it is important to protest for police brutality and the way policing happens in this country and it is important to understand that the people that who put the police in office are voted on these are people that we put in office or we choose not to put in office so voting really translates to the power having the power of putting people in office whose values align with yours as opposed to getting upset I wouldn't even say as opposed to, I think I'd say in addition to getting upset with the people who are currently in power and trying to get them to reverse some of these decisions. And I think when we contextualize voting from the perspective of it being a power position and the power really should in its inception lie in the people, I think young people may uh, become a little bit more enthusiastic about voting because we're in very, very critical times and a lot of the decisions that are being made for our and young people's lives have to do with who we put into office. So once that connection is made, I have full confidence in young people that we will rise to the occasion and go to those polls. <laughs>
2: I listen to Madison in the morning on Sirius Radio, and he's always saying, "What you going to do about it?" And I, when when the kids complain, young people complain, I whether it's students or my own, I, say, "What you going to do about it?" Here's your way of holding yourself accountable. You can do something. You can vote, vote, that person out of office if you don't like what they're doing. So absolutely, I totally agree on that. And even
1: though the tactics of um, voter suppression are, are somewhat more subtle. Uh, they're just as effective when when you talk about voter suppression and gerrymandering. But how does storytelling, when we get back to oral tradition, how does storytelling help us to expose these issues and to address them?
2: Black people were made to feel ashamed of our lives, of our experiences. And then when when you were able to escape from it, you wanted to put that behind. I remember a phrase my my grandmother used to always say when you asked her questions about the past, don't go digging up dirt. She didn't wanna talk about a lot of her life and the struggles, especially that experience in Georgia that she decided to flee. She didn't wanna remind herself of the experiences that she had um, when when she wasn't able to get an education, wasn't able to go to the polls, you know, all the things that she was denied, she wanted to leave that behind. And so that so much was suppressed that that became uh, a part of, you know, how we functioned and how we, we sort of went through life navigating without sharing a lot of those stories.
0: I'm actually working with four young Black women producers who are taking stories from local women and making a, a little trilogy, and it's called Mind, Body, and Soul. And the mind focuses on Black women in education locally. The body talks about Black women who've been part of the hospitals and who were part of that first vanguard in the 50s when Black women were allowed to come to UNC and be a part of the hospital. And then Soul, of course, deals with Black women in the civil rights movement and Black women in voting. So it's an attempt to take some of those oral histories and take some of those stories and translate them into documentaries that young women can look at. And so um, it's a very powerful collective to have four young Black women want to tell this intergenerational story. And it's headed up by Molly Ruby, who has done a tremendous job at the Chapel Hill Public Library of being very inclusive about these stories. So we're, we're we're peeling back layers of uh, history of Chapel Hill. We, we had exceptional women like Ida B. Wells, but we were not in large part in charge of the media. We were not in large part, uh, we did not have the resources to record and document our history. We were not wealthy landowners who could have um, boxes of materials in universities. So some of these stories, and a lot of these stories that we really need to know when our mothers taught us how to fight, you know, that, that old um, song, you know, I'm a soldier in the army, and my mother taught me how to fight. We carry on those traditions through those songs, through those narratives, because we did not have the resources a lot of times to document our history, but they are so important to understanding where we came from. I always say that documenting that history is at least as important of the history as the history itself.
1: our Southern Futures Reading Corner. So I'm going to ask my guest today, Gloria Thomas, Dr. Gloria Thomas and Danita Mason-Hogans to read for us. So we'll start with you, Gloria, what have you chosen to read for us today?
2: I have chosen the entirety of the Equal Rights Amendment to the United States Constitution, which I can read in a minute or less. Um, It it has taken all of 48, almost 50 years for um, 38 states to ratify the the ERA, and, and now it's in limbo. But here it is. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. This amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. Thank
1: you for reading that, especially now as we head to the polls. Thank you. Uh, Danita, what are you reading for us and why, why this particular selection?
0: Well, well, if I can cheat, I want to read two. They're very short from um, North Carolina women whom um, I adore. So the first is by Anna Julia Cooper. Let woman's claim be as broad in the concrete as the abstract. We take our stand on the solidarity of humanity, the oneness of life and the unnaturalness and injustice of all special favoritism, whether of race, sex, country, or condition. If one link of the chain is broken, the chain is broken. And the next is from my... Other homegirl, Polly Murray. (laughs) Polly Murray says, Negro women historically have carried the dual burden of Jim Crow and Jane Crow. They have not always carried it graciously, but they have carried it effectively. In the course of their climb, Negro women have had to fight against the stereotypes of female dominance on one hand and loose morals on the other hand both growing out of the roles forced upon them during slavery experience and its aftermath. But out of their struggle for human dignity, they also developed a tradition of independence and self-reliance.
1: Thank you both for those selections. Again, it is close to election time. Stakes are high, and that seems like an understatement uh, and almost too cliche, but it is true. So I'd like to wrap up the show with some final thoughts from you guys that you can leave us with about uh, about voting, about the importance of exercising that right, understanding the struggles that provides those rights, uh, and how you imagine the, the future for the American South when you think about voting and voting rights.
0: I guess my closing thoughts would be that You know, it distresses me when I hear young people say, this is not your mother's civil rights uh, movement. It is our civil rights movement. It's your mother's and her mother's and her mother's before her. Because we have not finished the job that we have to do in order to do better by our communities, educationally, health-wise, mass incarceration. These are things that our mothers fought for. And these are the things that we have to continue to fight for. So we can't look at at voting as the end all be all, but it is definitely one of the powerful tools we have in the the toolkit to help us towards where we need to be in this society. So it is very important that young people continue that tradition and that we continue to be the vanguard for our communities and voting is one of the ways to do that. So I look forward to seeing all the young people at the polls please get in contact with me if you want to help and find ways that we can engage the community. And thank y'all so
2: much. I would say continue to build on the right to vote and and exercise that right to vote, but then go a little further and imagine yourself, uh, to the young people, imagine yourself as the next governor of North Carolina. Um, or the, the congressperson from North Carolina. I, I keep encouraging my own daughter to think big and think about serving in this capacity and, and the, maybe the, the opportunity to have a grandchild who will maybe take on this role. But I, I'd like to see the, the future South to represent all of us at all levels of governance, at all levels of, of society. That's the, the future of the future North Carolina and the South that I see.
1: Danita and Gloria, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us at a critical time in our nation and in the South. Thanks to our listeners also, and please join us for our next episode for executive producer, Dr. Melinda Maynor-Lowry and sound editor, Mark Meyer. I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion. Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern futures, reimagine the American South, and vote.